We've been going through a series, a sermon series that takes us through the book of Titus. We started the year trying to make sure that we're moving in the direction that God calls us to move in as a church. And Titus was a young man that was sent to the island of Crete by Paul to put those churches there in order. They were a mess. We're not a mess necessarily, but we still have to take time, I think, to step back and make sure that we're doing what we need to do to stay focused on the mission we've been called to. And I don't know how it is for you. I find it easy for myself to get distracted from God's calling on my life to engage in so many other things. Instead of staying focused, I find myself distracted doing things that I was never intended to do. I don't have the gifting to do, the calling to do. I just find myself doing them. For whatever reason... Engaged in conversations I don't need to have, doing things I didn't need to do. As a church, you find yourself in that same predicament a lot. At least that's been my experience over these last 32 years of ministry. Have you ever heard of the term mission drift? Has anybody ever heard that? I've used it in here before. Cindy and I have had several conversations about it. Mission drift is when a person or organization loses track of the main thing. Mission drift happens when a person or organization loses its focus on why it exists or it gets sidetracked with secondary kinds of things and drifts away from its mission. Our mission as followers of Christ Jesus is to be disciples and to imitate Christ, to do what he has taught us to do. That's our mission, pure and simple. The mission of a church at least according to Titus, is to create disciples who devote their lives to good works that bring glory and honor to God. Pure and simple, that's the mission of the church, to make disciples who through their good works bring glory and honor to God. But mission drift happens all the time, not only in individuals like me and maybe you, but also mission drift happens all the time in churches, we get sidetracked by secondary things. We lose focus on why we're here, forget why we exist and what we ought to be doing. It's easy to experience mission drift. It's easy to lose focus on what I keep thinking. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to just go ahead and get this off the table because I keep thinking it. You guys seen the movie Up? You got the little dog? I can't remember any of the characters' names, but there's this pet dog. Doug, there you go. Who said that? Thank you, Micah. They got Doug along with the old man and this boy, and they're trying to, I don't know, I can't remember what they're trying to do, but this dog will go along sniffing the ground, and they're following the dog. All of a sudden, the dog goes, squirrel, and take off. Remember that? That's how I am a lot in my life. Maybe you too, but that's certainly what a church can be like. We're going along, doing really good, and all of a sudden, squirrel, squirrel. And before we know it, we're like, why are we even, what are we doing? We're so far off track. Mission drift. Mission drift happens all the time in churches like ours. Let me share with you some of the experiences I've had in these 32 years as, in church ministry with mission drift in the church. Instead of praying, instead of praying for the nations and mobilizing outreach to our community, in one church, we found ourselves arguing about whether we should have blinds or curtains on the windows in the fellowship hall. Week after week of arguments over whether there should be windows 
we should have been praying. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but no, we were arguing over should we have blinds? That's blinds, right? They tilt. Or shades. Like, come on, people, there are bigger issues in life. You know what I'm saying? People are dying and going to hell. We're arguing about what we need to have on the fellowship windows. In one church, or I'll, I'll combine a couple. Instead of visiting the sick and counseling the hurting, in one church we found ourselves squabbling over whether or not we should have drums in the sanctuary. Whether or not the pastor should have a beard. Truly, I got a call at least once a week from this sweet little old lady in my church. I had a little beard going on. It wasn't much. It's all I could do, you know. It's the best I could do. But she was convinced I could not be a true man of God if I had a beard on my face. She would call me every week, Sister Lucille. Hey, Sister Lucille. Pastor Mark, I wish you'd get that beard off your face. I don't think men of God ought to be having it. I'm like, Where, where's Jesus in this anyway, you know? <laughs> or, or we got into an argument in one church about whether or not other churches could borrow our church van. You know, squirrel, we ought to be praying. Squirrel, we ought to be organizing outreach to our community. Squirrel, mission drift, man, happens all the time. Happens all the time. If we're going to be the church that God calls us to be, we've got to avoid that kind of mission drift. We've got to stay focused on what our mission is. We've got to work hard to maintain that focus. Focus on the things that really matter. Focus is a critical practice. We've been talking about different practices of a church that's doing what God wants it to do. We've talked about the need for biblical preaching. We've talked about the need for godly leadership. We've talked about the need for practical and consistent teaching, a culture, if you will, of discipleship taking place where all of us are pitching in. We have, we've talked about the need to be ready for those good works when we're given the, the opportunity to do them by being good citizens, by being good neighbors. Well, today we're going to talk about this critical practice of staying focused on the mission and not being guilty of mission drift, not being caught up by the squirrels, distracted by the things that come our way, but focused on the mission. It's important for us as individuals, it's important for us as a church to stay focused on the mission. But boy, it's hard. It's so hard. Focus is a critical practice. For any church that cares about fulfilling its mission to make disciples and to advance the kingdom of God. In this little passage of scripture we've got here today, we're going to talk about three things that we have got to do if we're going to maintain our focus and not get caught up drifting away from our mission. Titus 3, 8 through 11 tells us that we need to hammer home the great truths of the gospel. It tells us that we need to steer clear of quarrels that add nothing and go nowhere. And it tells us we need to deal with those who stir up division. So let's get right into this word. Let's look at it, break it down, and I hope that you'll take it to heart. Not only, I hope you'll think of it in terms of our church, but I, hope, I also hope that you think of it in terms of your own personal life. Because these principles, I think, certainly apply to us as individual followers of Christ who are intent on being a disciple of Jesus. Read it with me. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law. That's talking about the Old Testament law. 
for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's pray. God, thank you for its word, this word. It's a sobering word. We, I don't know how it's going to affect anybody else, but this week it has caused me to pause and think about my life and the mission that you have given me as a disciple, as a pastor. I pray that you would do the same with each member in this congregation. May we pause and think about what you're saying to us. Saying to us as a church and saying to us as individuals about staying focused on the mission, about not being distracted, about staying focused on what's most important and avoiding mission drift. Father, I love you, and I thank you for the Spirit of God that brings this truth to life. Help me to get out of your way. Speak through me, Jesus. I love you. I love what you're doing in us. I love what you're doing through us. I just want, Father, I I just... I want to be a person and I want to be a church that simply does everything for your glory. Everything we do, may we do it for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we maintain focus on our mission as a church? The first thing Titus reveals to us here is that we need to hammer home the great truths of the gospel. Hammer home the great truths of the gospel. Verse 8 says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist, insist on these things. What verse 8 is doing is it's pointing us back to the, to the previous verses, verses 4 through 7, that give us a summary of the gospel and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So I want to read that passage of scripture again because this is what we intend to hammer home. Every time we gather together, this is why we gather. Because of what God has done for us through his mercy, through his grace, through Christ Jesus. Okay, so here's what, here's what, here's what Paul is talking about when he says, insist on these things. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And everybody that's saved ought to give me a big amen right here. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal heaven. These are the things that we will insist on. We're not going to insist on you living a good life. What? No, we're going to insist on you living in the grace of God. Because if you live in the grace of God, you're going to live a good life. When you understand how deeply God loves you and you begin to live in His love, everything changes. So I hope we don't throw too much moralism at you. Seven easy steps to a blessed life. Three critical steps to a good marriage. Those sermons may come. But if they're not anchored in the grace of God, it's meaningless. Meaningless. You cannot live seven easy steps to a blessed life unless His grace energizes you to do it. Until you have recognized your complete dependency on Him and the sinfulness of your own heart, until you know His grace, you'll never be able to live in His power. 
and in his presence. Does it make sense? We're going to insist on these things, these great gospel truths. These are the great truths of the gospel. God saved us. You can't save yourself. Have you figured that out by now? You'll never figure this thing out. God saved us by his grace, not because of anything we've done or could do. His grace has saved us. And by His grace, we're given a new life. By His grace, we're given a new identity. By His grace, He declares us innocent and adopts us into His family. By His grace, His Spirit has come to dwell inside our hearts. By His grace, He has given us His Word that leads us into all truth. It's all about His grace. We are going to hammer home these gospel truths. We're not going to get distracted by telling you how you can be rich and prosperous and live without any sickness or disease. What? No, we're going to hammer home the truth that God loves you and He cares about you and He's sovereign over your life and He's providential in everything that happens and you can trust Him. That's what we're going to focus on. So when sickness comes, and Lord knows it's coming, or when sorrow comes because of a lost loved one, you're going to know how to hang on and not only just survive in the midst of that sorrow, but thrive. Because it's God's grace energizing you and moving you forward. You're going to learn to trust. We're going to hammer home these gospel truths. You get that? I hope you understand. This is what we want to focus on. We're, we're, we're going to hammer home these things. Not to be tedious. Not to be boring. Not to be repetitive. We are going to hammer home these things to encourage those of you who have been saved by God's grace to live up to these great truths of the gospel, to remind you to live in gratitude every day for all that you have received from God in Christ Jesus. You see, that's really all our life. All, this is really all our Christian life is about. It's about every day saying in every action, every breath, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. That's all it is. It's not more complicated than that. The way I put it Monday uh, at, the, at, the, at, at the homegoing service was love God, love people. That's all the Lord's asking of us. Love God, love people. Now, you can't do it on your own. But that's why we have His grace energizing us and His Spirit indwelling us so that we can do what He's calling us to do. Verse 8 says, to insist on these things. To insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's these things that are excellent and profitable for people. You see, when we keep hammering home these great truths, our prayer is that we will drive them deep down into the soul of God's people. And if we do, that means that, they will, that, that the truth of God, working with the Spirit of God, will produce lives that are devoted to good works. Lives that are lived for the glory of God. Lives that become expressions of gratitude for God's amazing grace. So we're going to hammer these truths home. We're going to preach them. We're going to teach them. We're going to sing them. We're going to celebrate these great truths of the gospel. Like the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like the sovereignty and the providence of God. We're going to hammer home the truth of the incarnation and the virgin birth of Christ Jesus. The power of Christ's atoning blood. Justification by faith. Adoption into God's family. The empowering presence of God's Spirit. The return of Christ Jesus as King. We're going to keep coming back to these same themes over and over and over again. And I get this image in my mind of a balloon, if you will. Each of you, let's pretend that your soul is a balloon. Inside your heart is 
I would say a bladder, but I'm not talking about that kind of bladder. A balloon. And every time you come to church, every time you gather for a small group and these great truths are hammered home, it's going to be like a big... It's going to be like God blowing air into the balloon of your soul. Jesus saved you. Jesus loves you. Jesus makes you holy. The Holy Spirit lives inside. And you, the balloon of your soul is going to get bigger. And You get what I'm saying? That, that's the image I keep thinking. Every time, it's like God's going to take his, his word by his spirit and just keep pumping his truth and his grace and his mercy and his goodness and his love into our hearts. And we're going to keep, does that make sense? That's what we're doing. We're simply taking the tools that God has given us and we are using them to expand the size of your soul. Bring it healing. Make you capable of more than you ever dreamed possible. Make your life achieve the potential that's been placed in you by Christ Jesus. So we're going to preach and teach, celebrate these great truths. We're going to keep hammering them home. Colossians 3.16 says it this way. You guys in recovery ought to be familiar with this verse. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. You see, this is the message we preach and we teach and we sing again and again and again because these are the things that really matter. These are the truths that save us. These are the truths that will set us free. These are the truths that mold us. These are the truths that shape us into the image of Christ. These are the truths upon which we build our lives and we live out our purpose. So these truths we hammer home again and again. I had a lady come to a church service years ago. I don't know her name. I know she brought two or three kids with her. And she sat right over there about where Katie's sitting. New, never seen her before. And it was on a Sunday leading up to Easter. And typically what we do on a Sunday leading up to Easter is we preach about the cross. Cross is a pretty good fundamental subject that we ought to talk about rather frequently throughout the church here, amen? I mean, without the cross, where are we? Lost, undone. Not reconciled to God, but, but God through the cross has reconciled us to himself. Right, so I preached on the cross. Unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to her, she had a friend that attended Christian Life Fellowship at the time, and they bumped into each other at work. And the lady who visited asked the, the member of CLF at the time, where were you? I didn't see you there. She's, and, and, and the lady apologized. And the friend who, who was a, a current attender said, what did you think about the church service? She said, oh, it was great. It was great. He preached about the cross, but I'm past all that now. I don't even worry about that kind of, I'm on to other things. Like, as a Christian, can we ever get past the cross? But that's where a lot of us are right now. It's like, that's why we have no understanding, and that's why we ourselves find ourselves drifting, because we have forgotten what life is really all about, living our lives in the, as an expression of gratitude for what God did to us at the, through, through the cross. Anyway, you may get bored because we keep talking about the same things over and over again. How many times have you sung Amazing Grace? Does it still move you when you sing it? You know what I'm saying? 
There's a great preacher. Preached five times in a row on, on John 3.16. Can't remember the name of the preacher. One of his members came up to him after the fifth sermon and said, Pastor, don't you think there are other verses in the Bible? And he said, I'm not moving on until you get this one. When you fully understand John 3.16, we'll move on. Well, sometimes I feel that way. Until we fully understand this concept, this theological truth, I'm not even sure we need to move on. Until you understand the grace of God, why should we move on from that? Until you understand the power of the cross, where else is there to go? We're going to keep hammering home these great gospel truths. Not going to get distracted. That's what the word calls us to do, and that's what we intend to do. Spurgeon said it this way. Here you go. Spurgeon quote number one. Sean, you happy? Brethren, first and above all things, keep to plain evangelical doctrines. Whatever else you do or do not preach, be sure incessantly to bring forth the soul-saving truth of Christ and Him crucified. Can I get an amen? This is where we're going. This is who I hope we were. I know this is who we hope to be. So we're going to maintain our focus on what God is calling us to do as a church by hammering home the great truths of the gospel. And second, Titus tells us that we need to steer clear of quarrels that add nothing and go nowhere. And this certainly has a lot of value for us as, as individuals. Verses, in verse 9 it says, But avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they un are unprofitable and worthless. In other words, what Paul is, is saying to Titus and to the churches at Crete, don't waste valuable time and energy arguing about things that don't really matter and cause unnecessary conflict among God's people. Steer clear of those kinds of arguments. Paul says it again to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2.23 when he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Now, if, if Christians thought they had problems avoiding foolish, ignorant controversies in the first century, then what would they think about us who live in the days of the World Wide Web? I, I, it seems like everybody's trolling for an argument. Doesn't it? Or am I the only one? It seems like everybody is trolling for some kind of controversy. Was Jesus rich or poor? Is the King James Bible the only legitimate Bible? Should Christians celebrate secular holidays? Is the true Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday? Should we dunk or should we sprinkle? Baptism. Is tithing required? Should all Christians speak in tongues? Would Jesus be in favor of open borders? Can a Christian be gay? I mean, everybody's trolling for an argument in the 21st century. And I see lots of people taking the bait. Let's be clear. Let me step back and I want to be clear. That not all controversies are foolish. Not all controversies are foolish, and not all arguments are pointless. And sometimes you do have to do what Jude 3 tells us to do, and that's to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But how do you know the difference? How can you tell the difference between a fruitless controversy and a fruitful controversy? 
how do we know when we're being trolled? Here you go. You ready? I'm going to give you a little grid to work with. First, you know it's a foolish controversy when you find yourself arguing over a minor doctrinal point as though it were a major one. Be careful not to turn a doctrinal molehill into a mountain of controversy. Some doctrines are primary, and those are the ones we contend. Those are mountains you need to die on. But a lot of doctrinal issues are really secondary, even tertiary, and some of them don't matter at all. Doctrines that are primary are doctrines like these. The Trinity, the deity of Christ, the inspiration of the Word of God. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are mountains we die on. Those are the issues that we ought to contend for. But there are a lot of other doctrines out there that are secondary. I've already mentioned some of them, but let me mention some more. And these are doctrines where Christians can agree to disagree. Okay? The timing of the rapture. I've seen churches split over people disagreeing if it was going to be a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture. And I'm like, who cares? Let's just get ready for it. Whenever it comes, let's be ready for Christ to come again. That's the point of this. Anyway, the mode of baptism. Mentioned that one already. Do we dunk? Do we sprinkle? The role of women in ministry. These are kind of secondary issues. We need to make sure that we don't make minor doctrines major sources of contention. Those are nice conversations to have alone. You know, you're talking about the word, does, the, the argument doesn't get heated. We used to have lots of talks like this late at night at youth camps among youth pastors. Some of those conversations I can't talk about in here. But So first of all, if, if, if you find that, a, uh, that you're arguing over a minor doctrine, trying to make it a major doctrinal issue, back off. Let it go, you're being trolled. Second, you know it's a foolish controversy when you debate in the wrong way or with the wrong methods. When you are debating in the wrong way or when you are debating with the wrong methods, you're being trolled, you're being baited. When you start denying someone's salvation or attacking their character just because they disagree with you, then you're the one acting like a fool. Did I say that as strongly as I needed to say it? If you start calling other people names, you're the idiot. If you start questioning their salvation, you're the fool. Don't, don't get trolled like that. I hope you're also making personal application with some of this stuff. Third, you know it's a foolish controversy when you debate for the wrong reasons or with the wrong goals in mind. If your main concern is to win an argument or score points against another person or show off your debating skills, then it's your pride that's the real issue and not the topic at hand. You get that? How many of us the last couple weeks have been trolled and we found ourselves in an argument and we were only doing it to show how smart we were? Anybody? Thank you. You got trolled, baby. 
It was your pride that was the real issue. I like what Spurgeon has to say about foolish controversies. Second quote, all my Calvinistic brothers said, thank you, Mark. He said, I love what he says. He says, our days are few and are far better spent in doing good. Get that? Far better spent in doing good than in disputing over matters which are at best of minor importance. Our business is neither to ask nor answer foolish questions, but to avoid them altogether. And if we observe the apostles' precept, Titus 3, 8 or 9, to be careful to maintain good works, we shall find ourselves far too much occupied with profitable business to take much interest in unworthy, contentious, and needless strivings. Is that not a great quote? He may have been Calvinist, but the man knew the mind of God. Y'all Calvinists, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. What he's saying there is, if we would be about our business, staying focused on our mission, that kind of stuff won't even, we don't want any part of that, man. That's a distraction. I'm over here doing something for the glory of God. You want me to argue, waste my time and energy on something like, forget it, baby. I'm here, I'm focused, doing what I'm called to do bringing glory and honor to God through my life and through the works of my hands. Don't get distracted by silly quarrels that add nothing and take you nowhere. The third thing, we're going to maintain focus as a church. Hammer home great truths. Steer clear of foolish quarrels. And third, we need to deal with those who stir up division. Deal with those who stir up division. Now, some of you, I hope, will make personal application in your life as you think about this because there are people in your life that keep stirring it up. This has application for each one of us as individuals as well as a church. Verses 10 through 11 say, As for a person who stirs up division, as for a person who stirs up the drama, who continue to bring conflict after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, i, I got to be honest. Unfortunately, there seems to be in every church, in every group of people, Moses dealt with a group, and if you go back and read the, the story of the Exodus, there was a group that came out of Egypt with the uh, Israelites and the Bible simply refers to them as the rabble. The rabble. It was the rabble that just kept stirring up trouble within the family of God, within, within the people of God. We come to Nehemiah's day, when Nehemiah's trying to rebuild the walls. There was this guy named Sanballat, who had it in his mind that Nehemiah wasn't going to get those walls built. Listen, there's always one or more in a group of people of any size who are just determined to stir it up. And as I'm talking about that, some of you have faces coming into your mind right now. Yep, that's them. And that's okay. I just hope you're not looking in a mirror. Okay, anyway. Ow! Okay. I mean, everyone else, everyone else seems to be living, everyone else seems to be on the same page, everyone else seems to be focused on the same purpose, 
Everyone else is worshiping and working and serving together to honor the Lord. But there always seems to be, and I've used the phrase before, that one. Say it with me. That one. Or that small group of people who just seem to thrive on conflict. They love the drama. And the conflict causes the church to lose its focus. Now I'm speaking from 32 years of ministry on church staffs. I'm not talking about our church particularly, although I'm sure it can happen here too. What is it? What? Who are these people? And, and, and why are they like that? Who are these people and why are they like that? Well, typically, in my experience and according to the Word of God, these are people, they want power and they want influence in the church. But instead of exercising influence with the tools we've been given, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and, and living a godly life, instead of using those tools, instead they use the tools that are mentioned in Titus 1.10, where it says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They are insubordinate to the Word, and they are insubordinate to church leadership or the leadership in their life. They use misleading words and nonsensical arguments to win people to their side. And they are skilled deceivers who manipulate people for their own personal gain. Insubordinate, empty talkers. What's going on? Who is that? Oh. <laughs> That's all right. So instead of being people that, that gain influence through their knowledge and understanding of the Word, through their godly lifestyle, instead they worm their way in and they are maybe not openly rebellious to the leadership, but subtly Rebellious to, you know what I'm talking about. And then they use a lot of empty talk. Words, 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 words. Stupid, silly things. Complaints. Whining, if you will. And they use deception. Manipulate. You know how people pit one against the other? I got, I got this one kid. It, I'm not going to mention names because I got KCS students here. But there's one kid... In, my, in one of my 10th grade classes. And he is, he's like incredible. And I, 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 I talked to him the other day about it. I was laughing about it. He is an instigator. He has a way of getting people to do what he wants to do, but he knows he'll get in trouble. So they, he, the other people will do it for him. They get in trouble. I see him do it all the time. And I finally called him out the other day. There are people like that in every group of people. There is an instigator, somebody that can, has a way of just working things, you know, pitting people against one another, getting them to do things that they want to do, but they're not about to because they know that they can, get them, they can get you to do it and you'll be the one. Come on. Some of you are hanging around instigators and you need to cut them out of your life, let me just say. They've done enough deception and manipulated you enough. All right, anyway, 
sidetrack. How do you deal with people like that? How do you deal with people who keep stirring up division? Now, notice it's a pattern who keeps stirring it up. We're all guilty at some point of being insubordinate. We're all guilty at some point of trying to manipulate things to get what we want out. So, but there are people who live, and this is a pattern. How do you deal with people who stir up division? Paul lays out a three-stage process, and I wanted to point it out to you really quickly. Uh, um, in the first and second stages, he says we are to issue a warning to the person. We're to let them know that what they're doing is creating a problem, and we give them a chance to correct their behavior. I want you to remember something. The ultimate goal in every disciplinary process is restoration. You need to hear that. The goal, in every, whether it's in your own home, whether it's at MSP, whether it's at Kingwood Christian School, hopefully in your job, is when a disciplinary process begins, it's with the goal of restoring that person, of bringing reconciliation, of bringing back a, 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 a state of, of harmony and unity within that family, within MSP. You get that, right? It's all about restoration. That's really what it should all be about. Everything should be done according to Ephesians 4.15, where it says we should speak the truth in love. But it has to be confronted. The person has to be warned that what they're doing is destructive. That it's a pattern of behavior that cannot continue without change, without correction. But if the person is unwilling to change, if the person is unwilling to correct their behavior, then Paul goes on to tell Titus that the church leadership is, is forced to advise the church to avoid that person. Verse 10 says, have nothing more to do with him. Man, that seems so harsh. That seems so harsh. But here's the reality. That person has already done it to themselves. They are the ones that have separated themselves away from the others. Lost sight of the mission. They're doing their own thing. As Paul says, they are self-condemned. Does that make sense? They've done it to themselves. And that's the point in verse 11 when it says, such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Listen, before you start saying, man, that's so harsh, man. That is so. Let's go back to Jesus and what he said in Matthew 18. Because really what Paul is saying is really patterned after what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Listen to what Jesus said. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See, it's, that's what it's all about. It's about restoration. It's about bringing peace and unity back into the household of God. But if he does not listen, you warned him, he didn't listen. You take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Warn the second time. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So before you start saying, Mark, that New Testament stuff is really harsh, nah, that's what Jesus kind of set up for us. This is the process. 
he wants us to use in case we ever arrive at a situation like this where there's someone stirring up division. Yes, ma'am. Okay. If, and I'm, I'm, since you asked the question, I'm going to say, Brittany, if, if, if you want to, no, go ahead and leave it on. If, Brittany, if we became aware that you were constantly causing division, either through your words or your actions, expressing rebellion toward people who are in leadership here at the church, um, and, and it continued to be a pattern, I'd say, Brittany, can I talk to you? And I'd probably go with me and Cindy because she's in your life, a leader over your life. And I'd say, this is what we've seen, and it's got to stop. You can't continue doing this this way. You can't continue saying these things. You can't continue act, acting this way because you're undermining, you're undermining what God's trying to do here, right? And if you went back out and continued to do the same thing, we would call you in again, okay? Me and Cindy and maybe an elder and, and say, look, the pattern of behavior is continuing. We can't allow this to go on. You're tearing people apart. You're like a bull in a china shop. You know, We can't let this go on. You're causing too much division. Again, we might give you some kind of corrective action to take. In one instance, we had uh, a lady, because this, this similar thing did happen one time. We asked the person that was causing the problem when she came to church to sit down beside one of her friends who was also an elder's wife so that she wasn't free just to go about and do what she had been doing in the past. If you refuse to do that, then we have to ask you to leave. Does that make sense? Gentiles and tax collectors. Gentiles were people who were not considered to be part of the family of God. Tax collectors were considered to be the worst kind of sinners. What he's saying is you just need to cut off their influence. You need to let them move on, do what they're going to do with their life, so that the church can get back to its focus. Does that make sense? Any questions? I, I want to clear this up now. I don't want anybody walking out of here thinking, dear Lord, you guys are harsh. I really want to stop here because I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. Everything's done, I hope. Uh, we're speaking the truth in love, everything. Even the times where we have to sit down and have some, and I've had some tough conversations with people in this room, and you're still here. That's what I want you to understand. I mean, I'm looking around, and I can see several people I've had to have some really tough conversations with. I didn't want to have those conversations either. But I've had to. Because I saw you drifting away, and I saw you doing some things that were causing other people to lose sight of what their life is really all about in Christ Jesus. And I am so thankful to those of you who listened to what I had to say and accepted it and corrected your behavior and your attitudes, and you're still here. And some of y'all are my best friends. You know what I'm talking about? And we're still walking together. We're still doing things for the glory of God because that's really what it's all about. It's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of God. It's not about me having my way. I, can, I want you to correct me too. I make myself an open book to you guys. You, if you see anything in me that's stirring up division, anything in me that's getting off track from what God has called me to be as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, I want, if you do not talk to me, if you do not talk to me, my blood will be on your hands. Does that, does that make it clear enough? We're in this thing together. We're on a journey home together. We need one another. We need honesty and transparency in this group of people. We need to be able to have those frank and blunt conversations with one another. 
I don't want to see anybody left behind. I wanted to see us all gathered around the throne of Jesus on that day where we're celebrating and worshiping him together. You know, I, yes, Brian. And I, you know, I, I really, I'm going to come back to this. It's ultimately, ultimately, it's for the glory of God. Look what's going on right now in churches that failed to exercise discipline within their, within their local churches. A report came out in Houston about the, the uh, widespread abuse taking place in Southern Baptist churches. Over 800 cases, or seven, over 700 cases, I think they documented in their report, of youth pastors and pastors who sexually abused congregants in their care, but who were never, ever held accountable for it and were just simply passed on down the line to another church where they went on to do even more damage. Think about the Catholic Church and all that's going on there. Because they weren't disciplined. Be listen, listen, it's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. It's never about our own personal reputations. It's about the glory of God. And what happens here among us reflects on who the world sees Jesus as being. So I, I, cannot, I, I cannot be more serious about this. I, I just don't want to say too much because, you know, I, I've, I've been in too many, 32 years of experience, 16 of it here. We had other things happen in some of the churches I was at before. Instances, well, no, I don't want to get too detailed. Let's just say in other churches I was at, I kept wondering at what point does the pastor step in and correct this? At what point does, do we address it openly, honestly, and scripturally? Because if we allow it, to continue, it's going to fester and get worse and worse. It's necessary that we, that we do it, that we do it in, in a way that uh, seeks restoration and reconciliation, that seeks to keep peace and harmony. Um, let's not be afraid of it. That's what I'm trying to say, I guess. Let's not be afraid of it. Let's do what we've got to do, as painful as it might be. Um, Micah, would you guys come back? Maintaining focus in a culture like ours is really hard for a church. It's hard for a person. It's really hard for a church, a group of people. And I told Bill the other day, I said, for so many years here, I felt like I've been trying to herd a, or, uh, herd a, a bunch of cats, you know, trying to keep them moving in the same direction. And maybe you feel that way about your own family. I don't know, but it's, it, it can be kind of tough. Um, maintaining focus is a difficult thing, a difficult thing on so many levels. But it's an important, it is an absolutely critical practice that we work together to maintain focus, to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing by hammering on these great truths of the gospel, not getting sidetracked down little lanes that don't, you know, that aren't all that important. It's important that we steer clear of foolish arguments and controversies that are going to add nothing to what we're trying to do and take us where we don't want to go. And if necessary, we have to deal truthfully and graciously with those who stir up division. We just have to do it, um, as difficult as it might be, because they're going to distract us from the mission that we've been called to. One more quote from Spurgeon. I'm trying to make my Calvinist brothers happy today. One more quote from Spurgeon. I love what he has to say. He says, let us give chief attention to the chief things. Would you just say that with me? Let us... Give chief attention to the chief thing. Say it again. Let us give chief attention 
to the chief things. What are the chief things? The glory of God. The glory of God. The winning of souls for Christ and our own salvation. Those are the chief things. He goes on to say, there are fools enough in the world and there can be no need that Christian men should join that number. world's got plenty of fools. Let's not be counted among that number. Amen? Stand to your feet. Let's go to the Lord. and Let's worship. Please, if you have any questions about this message today, come talk to me. I just want us to focus on the glory of the Lord as we prepare to leave and go out these doors to represent Christ to a lost and dying world. I want to make one appeal before we begin to sing. And that's to those of you who are in this room and you haven't yet made Christ the Savior of your life. I want to very briefly share with you what Christ has done for you. God created you in His image to be in a loving relationship with Him. But each of us has done life our own way and we have done and I don't have to tell you how painful that can be when we turn our back on God and do our own thing our own way if you continue if you continue to turn your back on God if you continue to live life your way it's going to take you places you never intended to go you end up doing things you never intended to do it's going to cost you more than you ever intended to pay. And ultimately, it will bring you face to face with God. Well, you'll have to give an accounting for what you did with the life He gave you. We're sinners, each and every one of us, rebels by nature. And that stands at the root of our problem. We simply don't want to live for God. We want to do it our way. But God knows about our problem. He knows that we're guilty. And He knows that we cannot live life on our own. So what He did is He sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus died on that cross to pay the just penalty for our sin. He was raised again on the third day to prove that we have been made right in the eyes of God. And Jesus has sent His Holy Spirit to live in our hearts to give us the power to live for God now. If, if, we'll turn from our sin and believe in Christ. God has already done everything that needs to be done for our salvation. He has done everything that needs to be done to give us eternal life. It is a gift that He offers up to us through Christ Jesus. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. All we can do in response to it is to take God at His word and receive Christ as Savior. And if you're here today and you're ready, to stop living for yourself and start living for God. If you're ready today to receive the gift of eternal life,
you're ready today to receive the power that it takes to live for God, to stay focused on God, to please God, then I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to accept His offer of grace today. Repent and believe. Turn away from sin. Trust Christ. Repent and believe. So as we lift up these songs to the Lord today, as we glorify Him through these lyrics and in this music, if you're ready to make Christ your Savior, receive Him. Receive this gift of grace. If you're ready to live for Him, if you're ready to turn away from sin and trust Christ, these altars are open, and we invite you to come. Lord, I love you so much, and I thank you for the great privilege we have to gather here. Thank you for your presence that's here. Thank you for the Spirit of God that's moving in this place. Thank you that you're speaking to hearts. Thank you that you're drawing us near. I pray, Father, for those in this place that haven't yet accepted this offer of grace. I pray in the name of Jesus that every barrier or obstacle that might stand in the way right now would be removed and they would by faith receive eternal life, receive forgiveness for their sin, and stand before you today innocent and holy. We love you, Jesus. We thank for all you've done. Be glorified in our praise in our worship. In Jesus' name.